0: Hello, I am Dan Marino in San Francisco.
1: And I'm Nihal Al-Hadi in Toronto. Welcome to The Conversation Weekly. Dan, do you remember during the pandemic when people started leaving large cities en masse?
0: Oh yeah, it was big news. Well, all my friends were leaving the cities too, but headlines, right? Cities abandoned, urban exodus... It was all the thing to talk about early on in the pandemic.
1: Exactly. There were a lot of news stories about it. But it turns out that people have started moving back to big cities, and that's not necessarily a good thing.
0: Okay, you're going to have to convince me of that one, because I've often been under the impression that urbanization is a efficient way to house and supply a lot of people.
1: So the global trend is that countries are urbanizing rapidly. More and more people are moving from smaller cities to big cities. 50 years ago, only 30% of the world's population lived in urban areas, and five years ago, that figure grew to 55%. And Northern America is the most urbanized region, with 82% of its population living in urban areas.
0: Okay, so again, lots of urban things, but why is it bad?
1: On one hand, cities can't really accommodate a large and sudden population influx. They're not always equipped to provide the infrastructure and services needed to take care of that kind of population expansion. But on the other hand, people are leaving smaller cities. I'm really a big city girl, but I did spend a couple of years living in Moosejohn, Regina, in Saskatchewan. And I will say that smaller urban areas do have some things going for them. One thing, for example, is that it's a lot easier to live in a smaller urban area. You can have a really decent quality of life. It's more affordable. You get to build relationships with people you might not encounter outside of your small clique in a large urban city. And that's what this episode is about. I wanted to find out what happened to smaller cities when people left them for larger urban centers and how these cities are responding to try to get people to come and live in them.
2: We are living in a very peculiar time where we face high inflation and there is shortage of labor, all that affect the way we need to organize ourselves. In most nations around the world, urbanization is a major concern. This is Avi Friedman.
1: He's a professor of architecture at McGill University in Montreal, Canada, and has published books on sustainable development of small and mid-sized cities in Canada.
2: seems to me that we are living now in what one may call a perfect storm of conditions. We, society, and humanity, in fact, is facing several very major challenges. Many people are flocking to cities and increasing their number, and as a result, many of the associated aspects are also very visible, like congestion, affordable housing, uh, that probably going to plague many cities in decades to come.
1: We're looking at small to mid-sized cities. How do you define them, and how beyond scale do they differ from larger cities?
2: There are different ways to categorize. In my research, I found that one way to distinguish between small and mid-sized and large cities is, of course, by number of people by population. So small cities can be as low as a few thousands, and the demarcation line for mid-sized cities will be 50,000 people. Note
1: that anything over 500,000 people becomes a big city.
2: Another way to categorize them is by their urban character. If you visit both mid-sized and small cities, you most likely will recognize that they have a center, probably old center, that has one main street and most of the commerce is located in that place. The other area is usually residential, whereas in large cities we commonly meet or see several major areas in urban centers, but in small and mid-sized cities, there are commonly one center with very few main street, perhaps even one.
1: Avi says that a major reason why people don't live in smaller and mid-sized cities is that often these lack the job opportunities, social services, and infrastructure that bigger cities have.
2: As happened in many cases, when major employers leave the community. There is then a drastic decline in opportunities that are offered to the people who live there. And what commonly happens is that young people will live, will go to major population centers to seek opportunities, and older people who reside in their place will say, What we commonly see is change in demographic composition that put on that community a strain. There is no young taxpayer to support social services to elderly population. And this usually represents the beginning of decline that see a vicious cycle happen. You commonly see that stores are closing, businesses are leaving, and so on.
1: So to generate income, many cities turn
2: to tourism. When I wrote my book, Designing Small and mid sized Places, I visited many communities in the United States, primarily in the Northeast. And what happened is that they invested heavily in beautifying those communities. They invested in improving the landscaping, the restaurants. There are many opportunities that in summertime bring to those places many, many tourists. They pass through, they say, in a local inn for a while. And now a city that comes to my mind that I visited recently is a city called Woodstock in Vermont, that really it is a picturesque town with beautiful signage and so on. And you can see that those places are thriving and successful during summertime. So the idea is to foster tourism. But in most cases, tourism
1: is seasonal and doesn't provide cities with a steady year-round income. As well as often being seasonal, the tourism industry can be impacted by many unpredictable factors, as we've seen during COVID, and so cities can't rely on tourism as a steady revenue source. That's where taxes come in.
2: It all has to boil down to economics. Those cities that can function because of municipal taxes need people to support them. They need taxpayers. It is a major issue in making the city work. They collect taxes from the people who live there. When there is a negative migration and people moving away, it usually puts at risk the funds of these communities, meaning that there is no sources of income. Places that I have been working to, for example, small towns in Alberta, they understand That in order to grow, in order to provide better amenities, in order to pay for the library and the swimming pool, they badly need people who pay taxes because this is really the balance. This is the formula.
1: But if there aren't enough people living in these small and mid-sized cities, municipalities can't rely just on taxes to increase their income. To address this, Avi says that mid-sized cities try to invest in specific sectors.
2: That comes with what I will call innovation and taking initiative. How one brings people to those places. One of the ways that has become very prominent in recent years is affordable housing. If you visit some of these small communities, you can see that housing might be cheaper Say by at least 25 to 30 percent that may attract people. However, this is not enough. There need to be employment opportunity. Sometimes there are employers who select to settle, to come and set shop in such places because they have less restrictive bylaws. In other words, the benefit for, say, a tax incentive that a central government will provide. Say, if you go to Northern Ontario, for example, there are many small towns. If an employer wants to come there, they will get a hefty support because they want to maintain people in this place. So there is incentive for people to come to those places. Another important element is quality of life. Small and mid-sized cities are associated with better living conditions. There are many recreational opportunities, forests, lakes. The ratio between citizens and, say, amenities is very good. It's very favorable. And many people may leave behind all the advantages, if you will, of the major place and move to small places. So quality of life, better school sometime is greater advantage.
0: Okay, so if I understand right, there's been this long-term trend of urbanization with people leaving smaller cities, and the result is that all the tax revenue, small cities used to support the things they need to survive, are being drained away.
1: That's exactly it. Cities need money to function, and that's why they'll try to invest in industries coming in and setting up shop to provide work opportunities and to provide better amenities to attract people to live in them. But it's not just about creating these opportunities. You also need to let people know that they're there. And cities have been doing that in different ways, as I've been finding out from David Banks. David is a lecturer and director of globalization studies at the University of Albany in the U.S. He's about to publish a book in April titled The City Authentic, in which he shows how cities in the United States have been transforming themselves to appeal to people through attention-grabbing tactics. He started off with a bit of history.
3: There are basically three big movements of city building. So the first one, which, and this one I take from Peter Hall's Cities of Tomorrow, is that beginning in like Napoleon's rebuilding of Paris in the 1860s, kicks off what's called the City Beautiful movement. The idea that cities should be trophies for empire and should be literally awesome, right? They inspire awe in you. And that period ends, according to Hall, in the unbuilt or unrealized plans of post-war Berlin from Hitler, where he, you know, in classic fascist fashion, is just like farcically enormous buildings that are supposed to you know, make you afraid, basically, right? Again, awesome. And then the overlap there is the city efficient. And that one goes from like 1914 to about 1990. And the city efficient is all about rationalizing and organizing city functions into these highly engineered systems. And it's all about code, both urban planning code, like city codes, but also computer code. So this is where you get big highways, systems engineering, making sure that roads have a very specific width. You know, you get the standard 12-foot highway width, road, lane, stuff like that. Mostly comes out of Bartholomew, you know, America's first professional urban planner for Newark. But then you also have Cabousier, the French-Swiss architect who famously said, the house is a machine to live in. The idea is to strip down the city to its basic functions and make a very utilitarian system. That would be sort of like the basis for living.
1: David says the city efficient has gradually been replaced by a different kind of model. One that focuses less on physically building things to attract people and more on the messaging of how to attract people.
3: Now, I kind of add on top of that, the city authentic as the next big movement. And that I define as a set of policies, practices, and ideas that leverage modern desires for meaning. And belonging to drive economic development, right? So, what that looks like is cities using their own history and unique geography to set themselves apart from usually bigger cities.
1: There are a few noteworthy differences between the city authentic and the city efficient or beautiful. Large cities like New York and Shanghai are playing on a global scale. They would compete through flashy architectural projects and capitalize on an international reputation. The City Authentic, however, is competition for populations on a more regional scale. David studies mid-sized cities in the northeastern United States.
3: You see this a lot in smaller mid-sized cities. So like, for example, I talked to some economic development professionals in the Albany, New York area, which is where most of the book is based, who uh, say that they're going to, set up media buys on Instagram and Facebook to try to find people in like Boston and New York City and like larger cities with the pitch. Isn't it expensive to live there? Oh, anyone could come up with the idea to live in Boston, right? Or like New York City. Don't you want to find a place that no one else knows about? Like this hidden gem, this thrift store find. That you, as a savvy, urban, authentic individual, right, you can find this. You know what's good, right? Other people are just sheep, right? Maybe the cost of living could be a little bit lower, right? It encourages people to think of the city as a place to be authentically you and to get away from these prepackaged, commodified notions of like how to live your life and instead be the curator of your own destiny, when a city calls itself authentic, what it's usually saying is you could be authentic if you lived here or even just visited here. And it's that pull of the promise of being authentic of realizing your full self, which is a very existential kind of idea, is actually, I argue, the basis of a lot of how cities advertise themselves. That's all through this big promise.
1: How are cities actually employing social media influencers, like what does that process look like?
3: Cities, because they start acting like brands, do the same things that private companies do in order to get advertising. And one way to get attention through influencers for a city is to find those people that are organically already doing that work online and working with them right? And leveraging their user base, their followers to reach whatever goals the city wants in terms of economic development.
1: The second way is to hire influencers directly.
3: For example, in St. Petersburg, Florida, which has actually the Tampa Bay, St. Petersburg area has always been a leader in municipal advertising. They were the first city to hire a full-time media manager for itself in the early 20th century, actually. And so today, you know, you look at the Tampa Bay Times, and they do actually have an article about how the mayor wanted to hire some TikTok influencers to advertise their city. And in that case, you know, he wanted to spend $95,000 for social media advertising through an influencer. And that's um, not abnormal. You know, this is the advertising budget. And a lot of that is going to go to influencers.
1: The City Authentic, David says, it's what's happening largely in smaller, mid-sized U.S. cities. And they're investing in branding and marketing that's specifically targeting the people they want to attract.
3: Smaller and mid-sized cities make better use of the City Authentic because they can make the following argument. New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, everyone knows these cities. They are the name brands We are that cool thrift store find. You're going to make a life for yourself. You're going to have an authentic urban experience that is impossible to have in these bigger cities strictly because all of these bigger cities are so well known. But you're smart enough and savvy enough to have found something that no one else knows about. And so smaller, mid-sized cities make better use of the city authentic. But of course, like you go to large cities and all over the place, there's efforts to try to make even a large city seem authentic and quirky.
1: Why are cities choosing this approach for economic development?
3: What this is about is spending as little as possible, changing as little as possible in order to gain as much wealth as possible. You're left with several large firms that can no longer find new markets domestically to sell to. And a lot of those new markets will come from the dilapidated leftovers of the previous industrial revolution, right? That's why the Rust Belt is such a fertile ground for this new industrial revolution of high finance and technology, is that these are places where the rents are really low, and you can exchange them for a song and then realize really big gains in value.
1: What drove city transformations in the past were dramatic developments in how we produce things.
3: The city beautiful, the city efficient, now the city authentic, they all relied on the cutting-edge technology at the time both to execute and to fund their development strategies, right? So the city beautiful is the money That was amassed to build enormous civic architecture and monuments and stuff like that all the stuff that made the city beautiful right is financed through young america's industrial development it's huge east coast banks that are funded by massive steel and textile companies right and then that those companies need to invest in something And so they invest it in these big, city-beautiful projects. And those big, city-beautiful projects are able to be built at all because we have an enormous steel industry that can very efficiently and effectively and at the right price point come together and build the Chrysler Building or something. In the city-efficient movement, you have the rise of both jet propulsion, right, aerospace, and computers. And the tons and tons of money... That are made in those two industries finance the growth of cities in the American South and Southwest. And they also are used in the construction of the highways and all of the little computer aided systems that make the massive never before seen lighted intersections work. Right. You do all these things to make the city grow bigger and bigger and bigger uh, requires all these technologies.
1: He says, The City Authentic is driven by the exponential growth of digital media and the technology sector.
3: The City Authentic is financed by computer web 2.0 kind of money. Uh, Sharon Zukin, a big name in this field, her latest book is all of these social media and web firms that just slosh money back and forth in order to build up these new big post-industrial centers that become basically office complexes. In upstate New York, you know, it's chip manufacturing and it's a lot of restaurants and tourism spaces that would be very difficult to advertise if it weren't for all of the social media apps that let people find new things. So again, it's always the technology du jour of the day that are used to finance and actually make the city.
1: But while the city authentic might offer new inhabitants a new story, The pandemic showed us that more is needed to get people to stay.
3: I think COVID gave us a taste of what will happen now, right? I look at both population and housing costs in the upstate New York area before and after COVID, and then also prior, all the way back to about 2010. And the amount of people that this attracts is nominal. It's not much, right? There was a little bit of an increase in population between 2010 to 2020 in the Albany area. It beat the statewide increase in population, but not by very much.
1: He says, instead of improving the city and attracting new residents who would put down roots, the city authentic has often made things too expensive for the people who already live there.
3: What it did do is make everything unaffordable. (laughs) You get like triple or quadruple digit percentage increases, right? Like I, I also document a lot how like people who've lived in places like Albany, Troy, where I live, you know, like these Rust Belt towns, they very understandably feel a lot of anger around these redevelopment strategies because like we've lived here through the bad times. When do we get all the good stuff that you're giving to these companies who might want to show up just when things are starting to get cool again? In Schenectady, their mayor, not the current one, but the one before that was like, trying to get a new wave of immigrants from New York City to come up to Schenectady to make new businesses, he was offering them all these enticements and the significant black population in Schenectady was like, you know, we work too. when when were you going to offer us all these enticements to start businesses?
0: So Nahal, I can see why this fun, quirky advertising around a small city isn't enough to lure people in, because like I'm a bit of a cynical person. If someone tries to shove some cool advertising in my face, my natural reaction is gonna be like, I don't want what you're selling. And we started off this conversation talking about urbanization, right? And there's a reason people like big cities. It's because of the entertainment and the diversity and the vibrancy and the economic opportunity. So I understand why there's this little bit of a hesitation around small cities.
1: Absolutely. And as Avi said, for people to come and stay in smaller cities, they need access to similar things. They need economic opportunities. They need infrastructure. They need access to services and amenities, entertainment. And I wanted to end on something that Avi had said to me when I asked him why we should still care about smaller cities too.
2: Well, I really feel that despite the fact that cities are now growing dramatically, good countries have a good balance between different types of communities. Meaning that you have that puzzle of small, medium, and large and all of these places are successful. And It provides an opportunity for people to make their choices where they wish to live in a small, medium, or large places. And I think that successful countries or very interesting places that I visited, I saw thriving communities of all size. So it is in the best interest of government not to let small town decline and do everything to continue and have this choice. I think that the countries should not have a single type of settlements in them. I think that it is important that people will have that choice, that people who are craving to live in a place that have good quality of life and amenities should be able to do so. You know, when you come to reflect on where some of Canada, great hockey players and so on, have started their career. They are usually in small places where the networking between neighbors and attention to good education, to camaraderie between people is more evident. The city, the big city, always regarded as anonymous place. You may live in a tall building in high-rise on the seventh floor and don't know who lives on the 25th floor. In small towns, people who live in small towns know their neighbors. They meet either in a community club and in a church. It is a different type of relations that create another aspect of what to live in a nice places.
1: That's it for this episode. A big thank you goes to the academics we've spoken to.
0: You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support the podcast and the conversation more broadly. Just go to donate.theconversation.com.
1: This episode of The Conversation Weekly was produced and written by Men Marwani. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Saral. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media. And Soraya Nandi does our transcripts. Man Marwani is also the show's executive producer. And I'm Nihal al Hadi. I'm Dan Reno. It's been a pleasure. Thank you all for listening.